Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. Uh, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Uh, if this is your first time at North Roanoke, then you should know that uh, as a church, we are committed to the Bible. We are committed to the Word of God, and one primary way that we display this is through preaching through whole books uh, of the Bible, which is how we land in chapter 2 of Hebrews this morning. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to, to camp out this morning. Uh, just to give you a little peek into student ministry week in and week out, uh, one of the first questions, really the first question that I ask the students before we, we start our lesson, before we start the teaching, is quite simply, what did we talk about last week? What did we talk about last week? Hopefully by now they've grown to expect this question. It is the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth. And I do this for, for several reasons. I do this so that we're all on the same page where we start, so that we all understand what has already been taught, so that we can understand what the Bible says, and so that we can all understand how one section of Scripture connects to the next. So in order to, to understand what we are learning about today, we need to know where we have been. And so the same thing is true for this morning. In order to understand the weight of the warning that we're going to hear in Hebrews chapter 2, which is our text this morning, we need to first remember, understand what took place in Hebrews chapter 1. Over the last few weeks, Pastor Daniel has been unpacking this, this central theme of the book of Hebrews. Hopefully you Remember it, it is, is succinctly, Jesus is better. Right? Jesus is better is the central theme of the entire book of Hebrews. That's going to be unpacked in a myriad of ways throughout the chapters. But uh, specifically, in chapter 1, we read of the superiority of Jesus as compared to the angels. That Jesus is greater than the angels. They are creatures... High creatures, powerful creatures, but He is God. They surround the throne of God, but He sits on the throne. The angels were created to serve, and Jesus rules and reigns over all. Jesus is better. Therefore, we must submit to Him and find our hope in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coronation as king, as Lord over all. This is our hope. This is why we are here. So it's this understanding that Jesus is greater that leads to our text this morning. So Hebrews chapter 2, hopefully by now you are there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 1 through 4, hear now the word of God. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a God who speaks. That is a blessing that far too often we take for granted. And so I pray right now uh, that You would continue to speak. You would speak through Your Word. You would lift high the sun. You would open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, protect us from neglect. Protect us from drift. Lord, use us to expand Your kingdom. Help us not to be complacent, but help us to pursue hard after Christ for the glory of His name in this area. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So the author continues his argument from the previous chapter with the word, therefore. Right, so the word, therefore, is, is basically just a, a, a sign, a connector, that what I'm about to say is based upon what I have just said. So therefore, what he's saying in this passage is I'm going to, to make an application that you need to be aware of that's based upon the superiority of the Son over the angels. He says that since we understand how much greater the Son is than the angels, since we have that understanding already present, we must now pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the first word that, w- that has to stand out in this passage that we need to pay attention to is the word we. Is the word we. He includes himself in this warning. You see that the author of Hebrews includes himself. And if the author of Hebrews, if the author of Scripture includes himself in this warning, then surely you and I are included in this warning. That we, as a church, as individual followers of Christ, must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. What have we heard? What have we heard? The gospel. We've heard that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, lived in sinless obedience to the Father, died an atoning death for sin, rose again from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God reigning and ruling over all, so that those who believe, so those who repent, those who trust in Christ will be saved. This is the message that we have heard. This is what we are to pay closer attention to. Pay closer attention to what you have heard. And the word heard here is is deeper than just listening. There are plenty of people in hell right now and will be in hell who have heard the gospel. Jesus himself spoke of those who, while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. So it's possible to hear the gospel week in and week out and not actually hear it. Simply coming to church and filling a pew week in and week out does not make you a Christian. Hearing without believing and obeying, is worthless. If you can hear the gospel preached and feel no stirring in your heart, then pay closer attention. It is a dangerous sign. 
Why? Because drifting is often imperceptible. Often imperceptible. Just like a a boat that is on the sea. Just like a, a boat or an airplane. If it's off course by even the slightest fraction of a degree... Over the course of hundreds of miles, it will end up in a uh, destination that it did not intend to be at. Just just slightly off course, and you can miss an entire country. Let me give a, a practical, culturally relevant example of drifting. The issue of marriage is one that is hotly debated in a lot of churches today. How are they... How are there so-called Christians who, who believe that same-sex marriage is okay? How is that possible? How did they get into this position? But you see, the, the battle for marriage was not a sweeping revolution that took place all at once. It was gradual. It was slow. It was a drift. Liberal Christians did not wake up one morning orthodox, believing in the totality of of Scripture, and then the next day believed that same-sex marriage was something to celebrate. So how did it begin? It began almost imperceptibly. See, the battle for marriage was lost, not in 2015 when same-sex marriage became legal, but when the church 50 or 60 years ago began to accept no-fault divorce. You see, because if... If we can annul our vow before God in marriage because I I fell out of love with this individual, we drifted apart, if that's okay, then who am I to say that two individuals that genuinely love each other can't get married just because they're of the same sex? See, the battle for marriage began as a drift. When the church was complacent in the first, when it compromised in the first instance, it put itself on a trajectory she never intended to be. We accepted the first, and over time, we ended up in a completely different area that those, 50, those individuals 50 and 60 years ago would not even believe. But it started as a drift. Imperceptible. Pay closer attention, all of us, as individuals, lest we become complacent and drift away. If we are not anchored to the harbor of Christ, we will miss our intended destination. If you have a boat on a dock that's not anchored, over time, the waves will take it out to sea. This takes effort. No one naturally drifts towards holiness. If you are lazy in your walk with Christ, then you are drifting away. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, if anyone thinks he stands, if anyone thinks he is okay, that he's fine, take heed lest he fall. If you think you're standing, but you don't love Christ, you're not pursuing Christ, you better watch yourself lest you also fall. How? How do we do this? How do we do this? Moeller writes, quote, the the writer of Hebrews indicates that there is only one way to fight against the danger of spiritual drift. We must pay attention to and obey the Word of God. 
Orthodoxy and obedience are the oars we must use for fighting against the straying current of spiritual drift, unquote. So we must be anchored in the Word of God. If we're not anchored in the Word of God, we will drift. If we are not obediently following the Word of God, we will drift. Right belief and right practice are crucial in the Christian life. They both must be present, lest we drift. The question that remains is, why? Why should we pay closer attention? Why should we submit our lives to Christ? Why should we fear drifting? Why is this important? The author of Hebrews answers our questions. Look back down at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In these verses, the author is arguing from less severity to greater severity. He's saying if you, if you think the first one is bad, this first example, if you think that's bad, you're not going to be able to even imagine how bad the second is going to be. From less severe to greater severity. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What in the world is he talking about here? What is this message of the angels that's so important to understand? So the message of the angels is a reference to the Mosaic law. Now, if you read Exodus chapter 19 through 40, when Moses goes on the mount uh, to receive the law from God, you're not going to see a mention of angels there. You're not going to see it through that narrative. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 2, Moses makes a reference to the angels being present. He said, ten thousands of holy ones were with God on the mountain. Along with that, there is Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, when he's about to be martyred, when he is giving his speech, describes the law as being delivered by angels. That's Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Paul does the exact same when in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, he compares, he calls the law as being delivered by angels. So the Old Testament law is the message that is mentioned here. Angels represent the Old Covenant law. Now this law that was delivered by angels proved to be reliable, or other translations say unalterable. Why is that? Because its source was God. The law's source is God, and every transgression or disobedience was punished. If you read the law in Leviticus then you will see that there are consequences for breaking the law. For some, it's, it's something small. Maybe you have to pay back a fine. Maybe you have to pay back uh, an animal to an individual. But in other cases, they're, they're capital offenses where an individual sins, take him outside the camp and you stone him. Transgressing the law had serious consequences and no transgressor escaped punishment under the law. Every sin had just 
retribution. Do not forget that an, an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness. They left Egypt, seeing God perform amazing miracles, disobeyed, and an entire generation died outside of the promised land. Do not think that we can escape. No transgressor escaped punishment under the law. But this moment, right at, right at verse 3, is where the passage, passage turns. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. If sinning against the law that was delivered by angels had such severe consequences, and they were, how much more do you think the punishment's going to be by neglecting the Son of God? How much more severe do you think the punishment will be for neglecting the Son? But did you catch, did you catch the word used in verse 3? Do you see it in your text? It was not hostility toward, it was not hatred for, it was neglect. Now, there are some who reject the Son and do it gladly. They hate Jesus. But there are far more who do it through negligence. You don't hate Jesus, you're just indifferent to him. You're fine with him as long as he's beneficial to you, as long as you gain social capital, as long as people look at you in a better light because you are coming to church, then you're fine with Jesus. As long as he stays in his little box on Sunday mornings and doesn't interfere with the rest of our lives, right in the cutoffs at 12, Jesus gets till 12 because kickoffs at 12.05. As long as he stays in that little area, then he's fine. But this is neglect. And this very well may describe some of you that are in this room. If you get more excited over a sports team winning than about someone coming to faith in Christ, you are neglecting the Son. If your life would not change much if you stopped coming to church... You're neglecting the son. And if you thought the punishment was bad in the Old Testament, how much worse is it going to be for those who neglect this great salvation? Such a great salvation is available in the Son of God. Greater than we could even begin to imagine. To no longer be under the just wrath of God and to be adopted and to into the very family of God as a son, as a daughter, because of Christ's death and resurrection. Not because of your own merit, not because of your own effort, but because of what Christ has done. This is a great salvation. But it's a salvation that demands our all. If you think that being baptized or signing a decision card or even filling a pew means that you're right with God, you are in danger of neglect. If you can be stone-faced, cold, dispassionate while worshiping Christ on a Sunday morning, then you are neglecting the Son. If you have little love for such a great Savior, if you have little desire to be obedient to His Word, then you are neglecting the Son. 
Some of you may be disgusted with me right now. How could I possibly say these things to you? You've been in this church longer than I've been alive. You've done things for this church that I wouldn't even imagine. And some of you probably have. I mean, after all, the Bible says that those who believe have eternal life, right? We are secure in Christ. Why do I need to worry about all this effort stuff? Why should I worry about drifting? And you're right. The Bible gives wonderful promises for those who believe. Wonderful promises. We are secure in Christ. But the Bible, along with promises, also gives warnings to His people as means to an end. The end goal is persevering in the faith. That's the goal. The means are sometimes promises, and sometimes warnings. True followers of Christ will hear the warning of Hebrews chapter 2 against neglect, against drifting, and be thankful for it. Pastor, thank you so much. Thank you. I was, I, I was starting to fall into some different areas. Thank you for fixing my eyes back on Christ. Thank you for reminding me of how much better He is. Thank you for reminding me of what He has done. True followers of Christ will hear the warning and spur on. It will spur them on to faithfulness to Christ. However, those who hear this warning about neglect, about drift, and think it's beneath them. After all, I'm a church member speaking as the world speaks. We cannot forget our Lord's parable of the soils. That there are plenty of people who at first may appear to be fruitful, but prove to be otherwise. When they either lack depth of soil or are choked by the cares of the world. Take these words to heart. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you know the glories of Christ and yet are still indifferent, what more could you ask for? There is no escape. Do not reject the Son. The author then, then lists, as he continues on, four different ways in which the salvation in the Son is greater than the message of the angels. Look back down at verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. So the first way is it was declared at first by the Lord. Do you remember the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1? It's been a few weeks since we've heard those preached. That long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke in a variety of ways. But in these last days, He has spoken finally, fully in His Son. The Son is the once and for all revelation of God, He is the last word. There is nothing new coming. Far too often in this culture, we, we crave something new. We crave the newest technology, the newest clothes, the newest cars. We think the, the latest diet is going to be the one that works. The previous 15 have not helped in the slightest, but daggone it, this last one is going to be the one to do it. We crave something new. However, what we need most is not something new, but something old. 
We need to return to what God has spoken and to who it was declared by. We cannot neglect the Son because God has spoken in Him. How much greater is the Son than the message of the angels? It was first declared by the Lord. Secondly, it was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested or confirmed by those who heard. It is no small matter that Christianity is not based upon legend. It's not based upon myth. It's not based upon morality. It's based on eyewitness testimony. The apostles did not come together and and make up this story and then try to sell it to the Roman Empire. They were eyewitnesses. They just simply reported what they saw. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a list of those who had seen the resurrected Christ, mentions 500 brothers. Why would he do that? So that the Corinthians, if they didn't believe Paul's word, he could point to the 500 and say, hey, talk to them. They will tell you the exact same thing that I told you. That Jesus is raised. Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, before the Jewish leaders, says this, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So before the leaders, Peter's not saying we made this up. He's saying we we cannot help. We have to speak of what we've seen and heard. That Jesus is alive. They were eyewitnesses. And we know that Christ is risen because the apostles saw Him. This isn't a blind faith. It is a faith that is attested to and confirmed by those who heard. So we can have confidence. How much greater is this faith than all others? How much greater is the salvation found in the Son than all others? Thirdly, look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. That God bore witness to the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel by signs and wonders and various miracles. Throughout the Bible, what you'll see at these At these massive climactic moments, God often performs miracles to show that He is the one that's behind it. It is His mark of confirmation to set it apart that I am the one doing this. He flexed His power to Egypt by bringing His people out with ten plagues, including the death of the firstborn. To show that He is the true God and not the Egyptian gods. He proved to Israel that he was the true God and not Baal on Mount Carmel when he rained down fire on Elijah's sacrifice and not on the prophet of Baal's sacrifice. Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verse 38 says, But if I do them, talking about works, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He tells the Jews to whom he is talking about, if you don't believe the words coming out of my mouth, believe the works that I am doing. Because no human could do the works that I am doing. God has to be the one to do these works. Therefore, believe the works because they testify that I am the Son of God. 
They were signs to point and validate Jesus' claim. Finally, the early church had the the same experience. Peter and John healed the lame man in Acts chapter 3 so they can point to it in Acts chapter 4 to prove that the gospel is true. That the healing of this man in the name of Jesus was to prove that the gospel is true. In Acts chapter 9, Peter heals Aeneas and the residents of the city who knew him, who saw it take place, they did what? They believed the gospel. They believed. Miracles took place to confirm the word of the gospel. Fourthly, look back down to verse 4. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to to his will. The Holy Spirit gives gifts in order to show how great this salvation truly is. The Holy Spirit gives gifts in order to show how great, how much greater this salvation is. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that Christ, when he ascended on high, gave gifts to men. And he gave gifts to to Christians, every individual has a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. Why? For what purpose? To build up the body of Christ in your local church and to mature to become more and more like Christ. In fact, the body is to be built up and every believer mature in Christ so that we will not be, listen to this, this is Ephesians chapter 4, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. That sounds quite similar to the language of drifting, does it not? So think about it, as as followers of Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God to lead us in maturation to be like Christ. We are given a group, the church, to come together to worship Christ, to propel us onward in the kingdom of God. How much greater is this salvation than the message declared by the angels? The message of the angels, the law, brought condemnation because we were not able to keep the law. The message of the Son says Christ has provided a way because you could not. And then in Christ, He gives the Spirit to give us power to live in obedience. The message of the angels lacked power, but the glorious message of the Son comes with the Spirit to give us power. We get to experience Christ in a way that no one could before He came. So since God has spoken definitively in His Son, the apostles were eyewitnesses to it. Signs and wonders and miracles took place to confirm it. And we're given gifts so that we might experience the truthfulness of it. How shall you escape if you neglect the Son. You won't. You have no excuse. Church, this is a warning passage. Do not 
drift. Do not neglect the sun. For some of you, maybe you realized, yeah, I am neglecting the sun. You have an opportunity today to submit to Christ. You have an opportunity to repent. You have an opportunity to believe in Him. Don't wait another day. Awake from your slumber. Awake from the neglect. Think clearly. Why should, be, why should you be more concerned with a game than you are your relationship with God? Don't neglect such a great salvation. Christ is better. He's better. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you know what we need. Sometimes it's promises and sometimes it's warnings. And I pray that these warnings would not be left idle, that you would press it upon our consciences. We can know where we stand. That you would stir our hearts to know and love Christ. That we wouldn't be cold to God. This is a great salvation. It is a wonderful salvation. It is an undeserved salvation, but we are a thankful people for it. We thank you for Christ, and I pray that we would respond as you call us to, and that we would worship you this morning and outside of this church and how we live our lives. It's in your son's beautiful name that I pray. Amen.